We're going to read uh, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 22, and then I'll pray, and you guys can then take a seat. So 1 Peter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We stand before you. We stand before uh, the words that you've spoken over us, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and lives to be lived, transformed by you. So, Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, lead us now, Holy Spirit, in your name, Jesus. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Thank you very much. Um, Welcome, and uh, my name is Kirk. If I don't know you, good to see you this morning. Uh, I do want to, before we get started into the breakdown of that passage, just say a happy Veterans Day to those of you that are veterans and say thank you for your service. And so if we could thank the veterans, that'd be wonderful. Appreciate that. I heard, I heard that we did that last week, but they're worthy of a double honor. So uh, thank you guys so much. And um, I think it's, it's timely and it's fitting. Um, I'm going to share today, since it was Veterans Day yesterday, a, a story about a Navy pilot uh, and then who turned into later a vice admiral. His name is James Stockdale. I want to kind of enter our time in the word just with this to frame our time together. And so just tell you about James Stockdale. He was shot down in his plane uh, during the Vietnam War. And uh, he wrote a book later called Courage Under Fire. And that, in that book, it kind of recounts the challenges faced by American POWs, uh, including brutal interrogations, uh, torture, prolonged periods of isolation. And despite those harsh conditions, he emerged as a leader and a symbol of the resistance within the prison where they were. Uh, under his leadership, they developed a clandestine communication system using taps and codes uh, to share information and maintain a sense of community. They created a, a structured environment, uh, resisting enemy propaganda and supporting each other's physical and mental well-being. Uh, despite the challenges, 
in this place. The POWs organized secret educational programs and activities. They communicated through covert methods to share knowledge, teach languages even, and conduct academic lectures. Additionally, some of the prisoners engaged in creating art, often using improvised materials. And all of these creative endeavors not only provided intellectual stimulation, but also became a source of hope and a way to maintain a sense of humanity amidst the dehumanizing conditions of captivity. So in his book, Stockdale mentions how he maintained this form of communication with his fellow, fellow prisoners using tap codes, and he used this code to share Bible verses and prayers, providing spiritual support and encouragement to his fellow POWs. And these subtle expressions of faith were a way for uh, Stockdale to uphold his Christian convictions and offer inspiration to his comrades in captivity. And this leadership and resilience uh, as a POW and this community became a symbol of hope um, in the face of adversity. And so he said this, and just wrap this story up with his Stockdale said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. So despite just horrible treatment, interrogations, brutality, uh, they continued to be good to each other. This community of POWs throughout the entire time to the point where even guards themselves would come and salute them and say, give recognition to their resilience and their hope that was carrying them on. Uh, even their oppressors would do that. And uh, this was all taking place uh, within the place called the Hanoi Hilton, uh, kind of a nickname for a prison in Hanoi, Vietnam. And so he came out eventually, uh, after seven years, imagine that, seven years in this place and uh, led a life of purpose after his military career. So the reason I share that this morning to introduce the passage that we're in in 1 Peter is because it's going to talk a little bit about suffering. And I just wanted to frame our time together by saying, can you imagine that kind of suffering? Right? I, I, I personally cannot imagine the type of suffering that he endured in this prison, in this um, POW community. And uh, continuing not just to suffer, but to do good in the midst of that. That is just an amazing testimony of those people. And as we dive into 1 Peter today, it's not like Paul or Peter, excuse me, is speaking to a POW community, but he is speaking to a community of Christians that are suffering. And at, at best, they are marginalized. At worst, they're being persecuted, literally for their faith. And so Peter is going to tell us, here's how I want you to live a life in response to this suffering. And it's going to seem completely counterintuitive. To me anyway, I hope you can feel that too. And I'm not the only one, but this is what Peter is going to tell us. He's going to give us a way to live that is living in a living hope. Okay. And with four aspects, I want to draw out today from uh, this text to kind of talk about the reality of this suffering that Peter is talking about and the Christian response to it. Um, and maybe 
like me, you're not suffering like Stockdale or even like these early Christians. And the reality is um, I was at a, an event last night that was a Christian school event where they were having an auction and there was a great meal. And uh, honestly, as I was preparing to teach this passage, I was struck by the discordance of the event with what I was going to be teaching. Like here we are as Christians enjoying this beautiful like three course meal and like a uh, celebration and tons of money being given towards the school. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But then looking at this and hearing these stories and thinking about persecuted Christians, I just think, wow, there's such a disparity in my experience, in our experience, and that of many Christians throughout history and even now. And so with that said, though, I don't want to minimize our suffering, our difficulties, because maybe you're not suffering persecution. As I said, I'm not. Maybe you are just suffering a little bit in being a Christian, trying to continue to do good in this world in response to Jesus Christ. Trying to live hopefully and trying to live with the resources that we have and maybe you endure relational strife and relational tension. Um, I mean, I think we can all at least relate with the reality that as parents, we try to do good to our kids over and over again and it's not like they always do good back. Is that true? As kids, sometimes youth kids are often trying to earn the favor of a a group of parents that are unfavorable towards them. And sadly, that happens where they get discouraged because they're doing good and good and good in that family context, and they have to experience negativity. Maybe you're in a struggling marriage and one of you feels like, man, I'm always serving my spouse. I'm always serving my wife. I'm always doing good and good. And it's, there's nothing that comes back in return or vice versa. And that's just a reality. We have the perpetual idea of our neighbors who you've taken cookies to and you've mowed their lawn and you've done good to them. And they just scowl at you when you come into your garage at the end of the day. So we all have a hint or a type of what maybe Peter is talking about here. Um, And in this context, he's talking about specifically with your faith in Christ. You're suffering these things simply because you're a Christian. Maybe you can feel like the psalmist when he said this in Psalm 120, verse six and seven. He said, too long have I had my dwelling amongst those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Have you ever felt that way? I, I think you probably have in life at some point. And so here's the reality. Uh, I, I think that for us as Christians, um, this passage helps us to understand what it looks like to live in the living hope, the true hope that God has given us in Christ uh, in a few different ways. And the first one we see, I think, in verses 13 and 14, and I believe that this living hope in Christ we have should make us fearless by the grace of God. So let's look at verse 13 again. It says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So Peter is here acknowledging the fact that like, generally speaking, people get the idea. 
I'm nice to you, you're nice to me back, okay? That is normal humanity when it's lived out properly, is that we are supposed to say, man, these guys are really giving their all. I mean, seriously, sometimes in a marriage relationship, you need to give your spouse a break. Just look at all that they do for you and then wise up to the fact that you should probably return the serve, so to speak. And in reality, that's the typical thing, that when you do good things to people, they don't want to hurt you. Uh, I hope. I mean, that's, that seems to be normal society, at least it should be. But what he is saying here as he moves on is the reality is that's not happening amongst these Christians in this Christian community. Verse, look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. So have no fear of them or be troubled. So what Peter is saying is like, not even if, as if it's not happening, but he's saying, this is a reality I know is taking place, that you are suffering for your faith while you do good in the world. And we'd be good to just stop right there for one second and say, uh, I hope that's the case amongst us in the sense that I hope what we're not doing in our life together as a church family, in our lives as Christians, is suffering a lot because of what one guy called self-inflicted gunshot wounds, right? Many times in life, we shoot ourselves in our foot with our sin, and then we get the consequences reaped back. Galatians tells us that what you reap, you sow. So please don't hear this message and say, man, I'm suffering a lot, but when you've really just been out sinning a lot, all right? I wanna encourage you, there's still grace for you, but that's not what this message is about. Um, so, fine, what we should be known for as the body of Christ, as Christians in this community, is people who genuinely are known for doing nothing but good in this city. In this city, for the benefit of the city, for the welfare of the city, because that is what we're called to be, as we've looked at all the way throughout 1 Peter. As John Whitaker said, we should be known for, being doing, for doing good in our hood, so to speak, right? So that's what we should be all about. Nonetheless, the reality is they are suffering. They are struggling. And that happens because, first of all, that is the Christian life. I don't want to burst too many bubbles here this morning, but I do want to say this, like we should know that uh, that is what we were called to because Jesus himself said it. I'll just read a couple verses from the gospel of John to remind us this morning that this is what it means to follow Jesus, really. He says this, John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own because you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the, world, the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. And then later he said this in John 16, 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So it's nothing new wasn't new in Jesus's teaching. It wasn't new in the early church that Peter is writing to. And it's not new throughout all of church history where the uh, blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church that Christians suffer persecution, marginalization, or suffering at the hands of people that they try to love and serve. That's just not new. And that's the reality that if we follow Jesus in his image as our master, that we're gonna experience that to some degree even if it doesn't feel like it now in this particular context. So 
what in the world does Peter do here when he says, hey, do not fear them. Do not fear them. I mean, that's easy to say. It's easy to say, hey, don't fear these people. Live a fearless life. And in reality, uh, the, the, the promise here is from verse 14 where it says, you're gonna be blessed if you don't fear them. So what I wanna say to you, first of all, is that how are we going to have this fearless life that Peter is talking about here? How are we going to do this? Because the reality is that it, it doesn't look like it's going to take place often because our suffering overwhelms us. And the first key is, like I said, to understand that this could be God's will. Look at verse 17. It says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And as I said, is it God's will? I asked my kids as we read this passage yesterday, like, what do you, what do you, what's your questions as you engage with this text? And they said, so is it God's will that we suffer? And I said, yes, it is according to this text. Now, of course, there's uh, variations to that. God uh, sometimes wills that his children suffer for good. He willed that for Jesus. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says that God willed for Jesus, his own unique son, to suffer under the cruel hands of men for his fate to be crucified. So whatever happens, it seems to me in scripture, God at least allows at least permits, at least wills in some way for us to go through things. And, and the question we have is like, why? Like, why? that's not helping me not fear. Okay, why should I not fear if God is willing that I'm suffering? Well, I actually believe this is part of the help that we find in this passage. Um, one of the reasons that God would do this, we read in 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7, is to test and to refine the genuineness of our faith. Uh, Tim Keller said this about this concept. He said, suffering is the stripping of our hope in finite things. Therefore, we do not put our ultimate hope in anything finite. Suffering strips us. I mean, here's the reality. As horrible as it is to think that God in his great wisdom would allow me or allow us or allow the church in general to go through times of darkness and suffering and difficulty, the reality is God has a purpose and plan in that, and that is to strip us of so many things. All you have to do is do the survey of First Peter. You're going to find this out. I'm just going to show you some of the things that God is stripping us from from First Peter, where our hope is in the wrong thing and God strips us of that, here's a few things. First of all, an easy and comfortable life. That's in 1 Peter 1. Just go back and read it. Two, the government and politics, right? Like it says, submit to Caesar Nero basically at the time. Like that strips us of any sense of uh, power or uh, uh, authority in society to submit to people like that. Marriage and family life, submit to a husband who's not yet a believer, who's not following Christ, he said in 1 Peter 3. Submit to the feelings of your wife to understand her as well, by the way. And then he goes on to say, your work life. Uh, you have masters that treat you poorly. That doesn't, that disappoints us. Like we all longed for that perfect job and that perfect time that would pay us the right amount of salary and give us the value and honor that we wanted. Getting revenge, he talks about in this book, that that's not gonna satisfy you either because judgment is under God. Your own passions and pleasures 
having control and domineering as a leader, uh, anxiety and worry, all of these things in 1 Peter are hopes that people have for some way to have meaning, control, or a special, unique calling or purpose in life. And he says, nope, those things are all gonna be stripped from you. And that's good news. That's good news. It's good news to get our hopes dashed because then we can hope in the right thing. Then we can realize that all along the things we were trusting and looking at, that will let us down. And Peter shows that very clearly here by quoting a passage from the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read this passage to you. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 to 13. Uh, He says this. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In this context, there's these surrounding nations around the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, they are so worried because they're such a small nation with no military power. And all of these nations are gathering on them like clouds of judgment about to fall in the rain upon them. And in doing so, they're tempted to make these political alliances with Assyria, with other places, and to worry, to have anxiety, to think like, God, there's all these conspiracies around our nation that we're not going to survive. And what does God say? No, don't call it a conspiracy, don't fear them. Um, I will just speak for a second into our moment in history, which is a reality that, are there not a lot of conspiracy theories out there? Um, And if you're a conspiracy theorist, I'm I'm not calling you out. Um, uh, There are some conspiracy theories that end up being true and we were all duped or we were all wrong or whatever it may be. There's usually people on both sides of this issue, right? It's like the people who's like, man, you watch this YouTube video and you're gonna have your life changed. And then you have the people who are just like, yeah, that's just trash. I'm not gonna listen to that. I'm gonna focus on my real life. Thank you very much. And so in the middle somewhere, the reality is of course there are things that we're duped with in media and social media and truth and disinformation and all this kind of stuff that now is well known. But even if it's true, what are you gonna do? Even if your conspiracy ends up to be the one nugget that reveals the Illuminati behind it all, what does that do for you? The reality is that that Fear or that honor or that respect that you show to those theories distracts you from showing the respect and honor that's appropriate to God and what his word is. And many times I've just noticed that people who do that get off on their life onto these rabbit trails of so many things where there's big gaping holes in our life about how we're not honoring Christ as well. So again, I'm up to listen to any theory, but this says Don't have that cynical approach that takes theories and then takes your heart away from trusting and honoring God because you fear. In a sense, he's saying, fear God. Here in this passage in Isaiah, then back in verse 15 in 1 Peter, he says, in your hearts honor Christ as holy. He replaces Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of nations with Jesus Christ and says, honor Christ as holy. Right? We, We know that Psalm, be still Know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations. Right? And 
Peter is telling these Christians that your fearlessness is going to come not so much from a resolution to the circumstances around you, but a proper honoring of God as holy in your life. That that's what you need. You need to see him for who he is. As one guy said, he said this, when we know that there's nothing that anyone can do to separate us from our future inheritance, fear is replaced with hope. We're no longer afraid to honor Christ as our Lord. Instead, from the depths of our heart, we want to cry out, Jesus is my King. He alone is holy and worthy of my praise and yours. I fear him only. Therefore, I'm not afraid of you. That's what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. This is what I mean by the living hope in our lives given through Christ leading to fearlessness. Okay? Um, Pastor Reggie sent me a text this morning. I missed this for first service. I want to share this with you because it's such a great illustration uh, of this. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., as many of us know, is a civil rights leader in the history of America um, and was a pastor as well. Just listen, as we put this in context with 1 Peter, with suffering and the response being one of hope, listen to what he said. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as it is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, we'll still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured, be ye assured, that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process of our victory will be a double victory. See, Martin Luther King Jr. knew the living hope in Christ and as such was able to see the future that Peter is talking about here where he's like, we're going to win you no matter what you do to us. Such power. Only possible in Christ. Fearless in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Okay, well, let's move on. Let's look as well at another aspect of this living hope that I see in this text here, going to verse 15, where he does say, set apart Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, so here we have a humble confidence in our living hope. Uh, this might sound like an oxymoron. This is like saying Deion Sanders and a humble coach. You know, I'm just joking. I, I actually like Deion Sanders. I like the positivity, actually. I actually do like that. But that's been something that people, I've, I've been banding about with friends of mine who like football. It's just like some people hate him, some people love him, whatever. So I'm just playing on that. Please don't, that's not a, a hit on Dion. 
Um, anyway, but it's that type of oxymoron where someone sees something, confidence, often as arrogance, and says, well, if you're confident, you can't be humble. And I believe that this passage pictures a Christian community that's both. And I think that there is good news in this passage for three different groups of people. First of all, those who find it hard to share their faith, because we're talking now about how our response leads to other people. Uh, second of all, those who are really amped up with zeal and want to share their faith but need some help. Uh, and then finally, even for those who aren't yet Christians, if you're here amongst us, there's good news here for you. So first of all, uh, confidence for those who don't know how to maybe give a defense. The first thing I want to say, that is what the passage is talking about, an apologia, a defense, a reasonable response. And notice here, though, he's not talking about an apologetic response, as we'd normally say, but a reason for the hope that's in you. But even that is hard for some people that are just introverts, right? Some of us are not those that want to speak to people about private matters, people that want to speak to people at all. Um, and so we want to kind of hide behind life in one sense because we're just uncomfortable in, in that kind of realm of talking about important things. Now, I want to say there is hope for you in this passage because of a simple word, the word you. Over and over again, it says set apart in your hearts. Give a reason for your defense or for your hope. And that word is a plural word there. It's as much of the New Testament, this is why my, I have this passion for us living in community because most of the New Testament, you should retranslate the word you as y'all, as I've said before. And he's saying, hey, y'all, you know, give a reason for the hope. And so if you are somebody who struggles with evangelism, with telling the story of the gospel, the good news is, first of all, by gathering here on Sunday, we all together, we become the public gathering of the church of Christ and all of our weaknesses and strengths combined do give a public testimony and witness to who Jesus is. Then when you live a life in a house church or church community group, then you get more embedded into a neighborhood and they see your love for one another. Then what happens is John 17, they go, oh, wow, there's something there amongst those people. We see them as they do good to us, as they serve us, as they love us. And in that reality, you just can be one piece of the puzzle, one member of the body. And so maybe it's someone a little more uh, charismatic or bold or whatever. They bring people to the, the house and then you sit there quietly in a corner and you have that nice conversation with them. Maybe you set the table and have the food out to bring hospitality and use your gifts and then that brings people in. And so from that, you're able to be a part of the witnessing community saying, we live differently, we live in love, we live in hope together and we're shining and showing you guys something that's different and welcome to the club. Sometimes I think we have false condemnation of ourselves that we're not sharing the story of the gospel, which of course I want all of you to do also with words, not just like that, but I'd say we have that false condemnation because we don't see ourselves as a community of people in Christ. Second, um, there's good news here for uh, those who are um, people who want to share. Um, and that good news is that you don't actually have to know that much. Now, of course, we, won't, we need to be well-equipped, but I'd say this. The hope that he's talking about here is not the ability to give a five-hour lecture on the merits of every apologetic issue throughout the history of the church. If you can do that, praise God. I'm super thankful for you. I learn from you. I appreciate that. 
Uh, however, he's talking about the hope specifically that is the living hope in this context of 1 Peter. When they ask a reason, notice, by the way, it's in there that they're asking. We're not necessarily always on the front foot attacking people as Christians. We're actually living lives that are worthy of being asked as a community. And they say, hey, what's going on there? And then there's a hope that we unpack. And I'll get to that in a second. But it's so very important that we understand that, that our core message is a message of hope. Because in the ancient world, it was a very hopeless place that Peter was writing into in the Roman Empire. Uh, John Whitaker shared this week in our teaching team a, a quote of a tombstone of that time that said, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. It was a hopeless society. And we live also in a hopeless society with platitudes like, hey, if they passed away, they're in a better place. Really? I remember when I was younger and like Puff Daddy came out with his song and it was like, I'll be watching you about, and it's like that, that somehow is supposed to give me some kind of, you know, comfort that Notorious B.I.G. has gone to be with the Lord or something. I have no idea, but uh, it's just these platitudes that just say like, hey, they're in a better place. But those platitudes and lives lived not showing hope is why we have an epidemic of suicide. And here's the thing, we shouldn't expect people who come under the weight of what reality is to not feel hopeless when there's so much to be hopeless about. And as Christians, we, we ought not to look at them and say like, how ridiculous, how you, you shouldn't feel that way. We, we should look to them and we should say, actually, we show you a different life. And that's the first thing. We, are we showing people a life of hope or are we bound ourselves to these hopes that disappoint? Peter, throughout uh, the, the book, not only gave people uh, these disappointing hopes, but he also gives a picture of what our living hope is. I'll just survey this with you real quick. Um, first of all, Jesus came. Jesus came, God with us, Emmanuel. You're not alone. God came into this broken world to live and to dwell and to be so you wouldn't have to be alone. Jesus died, he substituted himself in our place for our sin. Jesus rose. We're going to focus on that in a second. Jesus reigns. There is someone in authority in the midst of injustice in this world. Jesus is going to return. All the wrongs will be sorted out. All the brokenness will be made right. Jesus brings us to God. We have a relationship with God through Christ. And Jesus is working and meaning all this together for our good in life, all that we're suffering and going through. That's our hope as a Christian, as Christians, as a Christian community. And the reality is that's all based in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the main emphasis of first Peter. Now I'm going to uh, emphasize this because I would love if you don't know how to answer with the reason for your hope, I'd love if every single one of us were able from this day forward to say, you know what, I can tell you about the resurrection of Jesus because upon that fact historically is the underpinning of the Christian faith. Um, John Whitaker, again, he, he summarized it this way uh, under the acronym EASTER. So if you're not a Christian here today, I wanna share a hope with you. All the things I said about Jesus, but specifically 
This is why we do this on Sunday morning. This is why we gather. This is why we sing. Because there was an empty tomb. That's a historical fact attestified by many witnesses and could not be proven in the first two centuries. Nobody even tried to raise a claim. Secondly, appearances after the resurrection. People saw Jesus after the resurrection. And again, nobody tries to say that that didn't happen because there were so many eyewitnesses. Third, skeptics were converted. Think of Jesus' own brothers. Didn't believe in him, thought he was crazy, and then worshipped him as the Messiah moving forward. Like, if you worship in your brother, that's a skeptic. <laughs> that's a transformation. Same thing with Paul the Apostle, a religious zealot, fundamentalist terrorist who came to Christ overnight. Now, imagine that happening in our day. That's the power of what happened with Paul. Transformed apostles. These guys were dedicated to their faith. Their culture was Jewish around the temple, all of these things. And yet, overnight, they switched it all up and Jesus was the center. The existence of the church, as one guy said, the coming into existence of the church ripped a resurrection-sized hole into the fabric of history. The fact that we're here 2,000 years later, singing, worshiping Jesus, says this Jesus is alive. And finally, the ritual of baptism, because it would be nonsensical for them to celebrate that ritual if there wasn't a resurrection to found it in death and then life. So third, this is good news for those who aren't believers in this passage, because he says to us now, Christians, that's our hope. We're confident in it. And now he says, don't be a jerk. Okay? He says, with gentleness and respect. Think about this. The demeanor of our defense should not be arrogant. If you ever say, if I ever say, if we say, like, man, why don't they get it? Then we've misunderstood the grace of God. They don't get it because you didn't get it. Whether you were born in the church and at some point God gave you a revelation of who Jesus was and there was a new birth that took place or like me, you had not as much of a Christian background in your younger days and then had a radical transformation. Either way, I didn't get it. We didn't get it. Why would anybody else get it and why should we be prideful about it? We should walk humbly and say, we live our life and speak our words in the midst of a suffering world in the face of God and every word we say to an image bearer of God can hurt hurt or harm or bless or help. I pray that we would be, by God's grace, you know, and I'm preaching myself for sure, a humble people that can lovingly point people to Christ and say, look, this is reasonable. Would you consider this resurrection? If you're not here, we love you. We're, if you're here and you're not a believer, we love you. We're glad you're here. We're not, we're, everyone has questions. Everyone has doubts. Everyone has things they have to work through. And please ask us. If we're not living our lives in a hopeful way that you don't see fearlessness and confidence and humility, call us on it. We need it. And finally, the last part of this chapter that I want to share as we move towards the end is, a very strange part of this chapter that's hard to interpret. And I definitely haven't left enough time to give it full justice, so I won't. Um, in verse 18, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
the substitution of Jesus is the central message of the gospel, that he lived and he died for us in our place, uh, brings all the suffering we go through into perspective, since it, that Christ is our example, as we said earlier. Um, but more than that, in this last section where you have then this strange bit of scripture where it talks about the spirits that are preached to in Noah's day and in prison and being brought out and there's baptism and there's eight people and what's going on in this passage, who knows? I'm just gonna give you three main views and then kind of get to the point. So just for your own study in the future, there's three ways that people see this passage historically. First of all, some people see here that because it says Jesus was made alive in the spirit, that the spirit he's talking about that, that, is, being, that, that is being preached through Noah is Jesus preaching by his spirit through Noah to people in the days of Noah who were disobedient and then were imprisoned in their judgment. If you don't understand, it's okay. Like, it's hard to understand. Second, uh, that Jesus is preaching to human people who were Old Testament saints and believers in God who then had to wait until the coming time where uh, his substitution would pay for them. Then he went down and told them, hey, I've done this. Come get your gifts and come up to heaven with me. Third, that he would be preaching to demonic spirits after his death, before his resurrection, going down and saying, I have totally defeated you. Your judgment is sealed. Either way, <laughs> in all three of these views, I'd say the point is clear. And the point is that Christ is victorious. And what the hopeful life in Christ that I'm calling us to today does is it says, in the spirit, through the resurrection of Jesus, we live victoriously in his authority to where no matter the dark clouds of judgment and situations and people's response, like in the days of Noah, we have victory in Christ as Christians. So most of our, many of our problems, not most, many of our problems, I believe, as a worshiping community come when we demand that God change a circumstance or that God impart certain political people into power so that we can see the victory, right? We sing that song, I'm going to see a victory. Well, the victory we see is Christ, death and resurrection. And in that sense, the beautiful thing about that is our victory is in the spirit and our victory throughout this passage says things like the shame is taken away. A good conscience is given. And I believe overall what we see here is that if by the grace of God, we have this hope in the resurrection that drives us, we'll be treating people properly. We'll be giving reasoned responses. We'll be doing good in our community. And all of that leads to feeling good, having a good conscience. Like my inner knowledge says, yes, this is right. I'm not taking revenge. I'm not giving it as I got it. And in doing so, A, we're shame-free because of Christ. B, we're shame-free because we're actually living in the good conscience he's given us. That's a victory. Some of us came in today with consciences weighed down with things. And that's because sometimes, again, we're not doing what we know we ought to do. But the grace of Christ is that in the spirit, he's done it for us. And then in the spirit, we can. And finally, the last thing I want to say is that you see in this passage a 
hint as well of the victory that we would invite you to if you're not yet a believer here today. Okay, listen, thank you for being here. Um, as I said, please ask us about our hope. I hope and, and pray that you can see the resurrection as a verifiable, true hope. Um, and here's what I'd say. If all of this sounds good to you, having a life with a true hope based in history where you can live fearlessly, confidently humble, and in victory, no matter any circumstance, Christ says to come. And he says in this passage, get baptized. That's, that's the response. Not pray a prayer, raise your hand, get baptized. Say, I will identify with you, Jesus. I will say, you died, you rose. I'm going to go in the water and say, I believe in you. I trust in you. I give you my conscience, cleanse it. And that is good news. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, you can turn to Christ. We had two baptisms after first service today. We invite you, come to Christ. He's done nothing but good to you. All that is in your life, he's brought you to every point because he wants to do good to you. He died for you, he loves you. He rose to give you victory over death and isolation and hopelessness so that you don't have to wander about in this world forever, the weights that you carry. We're gonna, as Christians, then prepare for communion and let's just pray that the Lord would make us the people that are in this passage, make us a community that is so full of living hope where we're fearless, confident, humble, and totally living in his victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word more than anything. It is a lamp to our feet, light to our path. We need it. Thank you for the reminders. Prepare our hearts now, Lord, to come to you. You, you died, this passage says, to bring us to you. As we prepare our hearts for communion, that we would come to you again and have our consciences cleansed and thank you for that provision, Lord. In your blood, we love you. In Jesus, your name, amen.